Downloads of this show are available on Podomatic.com and the Podomatic mobile app. Welcome to the fourth episode of the Truth to Power show. This is Radio Free Brooklyn. Today's episode will feature Tejas Desai, who is an American novelist. He's the author of the international crime epic, The Brotherhood Chronicle, set to be released in 2018 to 2020, and the acclaimed Good Americans, released in 2013. He is the founder of the the New Way Literary Movement, which has been written about in the Huffington Post, New World Review, and many other publications. He was born, lives in, and writes in New York City, where he works as a supervising librarian. We're going to have a frank talk about race and racial identity, as well as what it means to be American in today's society. So please stay tuned for the full episode, and uh, Tejas is going to be reading a little bit from his first novel, The Brotherhood, which was published in 2012 and is going to be re-released in 2018. Thanks. This is a chapter 10 from the book, which is actually uh, pretty pretty early in the book. It's uh, when Nero, the uh, down in his luck private investigator, um, starts to uh, look into the death of Priyametha, uh, whose death uh, starts the book. The next morning, Nero strolled along Union Square, his old haunt of nearly forgotten adventures. As he approached Bria's former NYU residence, he could still see splotches of blood stamped on the pavement from her fall like a footprint of death. He figured he'd probably bled or thrown up on the same spot many times before. Entering the building, he gave his name to the security guard, a burly black woman who glared at him suspiciously as she called up to Bria's roommate, Jody Chu. A few minutes later, Nero peered out Bria's window. Noticing how many windows in the opposing building faced it, somebody could have, possibly, seen a struggle, even at four in the morning. He had read the police report and had been surprised to note that only a few people in that building had actually been interviewed. One would hope that if someone had seen something, they would have reported it, so perhaps the oversight didn't matter. Then again, this was New York, so there were no guarantees. Jody sat uncomfortably in her Winnie the Pooh pajamas on her neatly made Winnie the Pooh covered bed. Directly across from her was Bria's bed, now totally stripped to the bare mattress. Nero noticed Jody's shirt barely constrained her large breasts. He tried not to look at them as he interrogated her. Is there any way to get into the building other than through the front door? It seemed, pr- it seemed pretty secure. Is it like that at night? There's always a guard there, she said. It's annoying if someone wants to visit you. I heard it wasn't so bad before September 11th, but there is another way in, an emergency exit in the back. It leads up to a dead end, but a fire escapes there and you can climb up. Sometimes kids go out to smoke sometimes. They leave it open and anyone can get in. Did you tell the cops when they interviewed you, he asked. They said there was no evidence anyone was in here, so I didn't say anything. When did you see Priya last? Six o'clock that night. She was getting ready, putting on makeup, when I left to go to Matt's apartment a couple of blocks away. Did you see Vishal? Who's Vishal? You don't know him? He was her boyfriend. Honestly, I wouldn't know. All I know is, since October, when she left the apartment and I looked out the window, I saw some Hispanic guy pick her up in a black limo. How often? Twice a week, sometimes more. She never told me anything. We used to be best friends, but sometime in October, she really changed. She stopped talking to me, and she'd take her calls in the bathroom. You guys were friends? Best. We were so excited to be rooming together. In undergrad, she lived at home until she talked her brother into letting her live at school. We both wanted to be financial analysts. We were happy to get into Stern and even luckier to get student housing as grad students. You know how much my boyfriend pays for rent just a couple of blocks away? I know. 
Yeah, it's crazy. Bri and me, we wanted banker guys, both of us. And when I found my guy Matt, we felt bad for her, so we kept setting her up with Matt's friends. First we tried white guys, then she said she was sick of dating white guys. So we tried the Indian guys, and they were all finance guys too. But she said she wasn't into, into any of them either. Maybe the whole eye-banking collapse scared her, I don't know. Then, one day, she just changed. She got cold. She started screaming at me if I left clothes on her bed, even though she never cared before. I tried to talk to her about it, but she'd just snap and tell me to leave her alone and give her space. So I did. I started spending more time in Matt's place, so I don't really know what went on. I guess you weren't completely surprised she killed herself, yes. Something was definitely wrong with her. I just didn't know what. Did you ever see a tall Indian guy visit her? Doesn't sound like anyone I remember, unless it was one of the finance guys she dated. But like I said, she wasn't into them. Her brother would come over sometimes to fix things like her computer. I guess he's some kind of computer engineer along with being a guru or, or whatever. You didn't like him? I didn't dislike him, but he was strange. I thought he ran Bria's life too much. Way too nosy. But I have to say, he did help us install his ceiling fan. Apparently against university regulations, since I'm getting fined for it. Meanwhile, I can't get a room transfer. Campus housing is booked. So I'm either, st I'm either stuck in this death pad or at Matt's place. Did you see Bria and Umra get into a fight, he asked. She was pretty quiet around him. He definitely ran things. Her dad came by once in a while, too, and they seemed to get along well. He bought her chocolates, nice dresses and jewelry and stuff, and even waited outside the room while she was changing, saying he wanted to be respectful of her space. And then he took out her out to a nice dinner. With her brother, she just stuck by his side, nodding and saying yes or no. He did come, he did come by once after she died to get the rest of the stuff the cops hadn't taken. Just some clothing and stuff in the drawers. Nero slid them open and saw they were empty. Then he excused himself and made his way to the fire escape. Carefully, he descended down the skeleton stairs until he reached a slightly open window, which he slid up and went under, then proceeded down the solid stairs to the emergency exit. Sure enough, the door was propped open. He heard some skinny white kids chatting outside, and he smelled some sweet smoke linger in. He snooped around, and in the corner, next to an empty, an empty trash can, saw a crumpled red and gold odney. Kneeling down, he observed a large, dark red stain on it, possibly of blood. Okay, so we're here with Tejas Desai, author and uh, writer and librarian. So why don't we start off by talking a little bit about um, you as a person, uh, where you grew up and where you lived for most of your life. Go ahead. Thanks, PJ. Um, I'm Tejas Desai. Um, and uh, basically, I'm born in New York City and born in Flushing, Queens. Um, my parents are from India. They are from the state of Gujarat and they... Uh, both immigrated in the late 70s, um, and I was born in the early 80s. Um, so I've lived in Queens most of my life. Um, I lived there until um, I went to college. Um, I went to the Bronx High School of Science in, in high school, so I had a, quite a long trip to high school every day. Um, but um, other than that, I was living uh, in Queens, and then I went to Wesleyan University in Connecticut, um, and I was there for four years, although one year I was at the University of Oxford in England um, as study abroad, and um, after that I came back home and I worked for a literary agency for a few years uh, in Manhattan. Um, I wasn't, wasn't a huge fan of that, um, and so I uh, went to library school, I got my MLS, um, I briefly moved to Boston for a couple of months. Uh, at okay. that time, I was interested in screenwriting and, um, and working with, for an independent filmmaker, a friend I knew. 
but then I got a job at the Queens Library and I got into an MFA program at Queens College and so I moved back to New York so, and I've been there. That was 10 years ago and I've been in New York City ever since. So you lived in Queens uh, the early part of your life, all your life, except for the mm-hmm. times when you were in college. And, right, uh, college. So and tell me a little bit more about living in Queens in uh, the 80s and 90s, uh, late 80s and 90s. Uh, you, what was your atmosphere growing up and what was the religious upbringing you had? Uh, I, you know, I, I felt it was a much more dangerous atmosphere, certainly, than it is now. Um, you know, um, much of, you know, I, I write, uh, I write what I would say is crime fiction for the most part, mm-hmm. um, and, you know, in the noir tradition. Um, and a lot of that was formulated when I was a kid. Um, you know, I, I definitely felt an atmosphere of fear a lot of my life, uh, growing up in Flushing and Corona. And, um... You know, so there was that. Atmosphere. Was the fear coming from kind of the the crime element, or from the uh, intimate building element, or? Um, it was <clears throat> the crime element. I'm actually, you know, I for much of, I mean, wh- where I was growing up uh, in Flushing, it wasn't on the surface. It didn't seem like the most, uh, you know, crime-ridden place, but uh, it was, you know, it, there, I had many friends who joined gangs. I had. It was uh, constant bullying and uh, constant um, violence around me. Um, so, and, I mean, I mean, they were they were great things too. I got a great education, for example, despite that. Um, but you know, there were things going on then that w- I don't think just maybe I don't know, maybe just the level of the times or the way things change in terms of policing or I don't know uh, wouldn't really as much be tolerated today in, in a certain mm-hmm. sense, but. So your interactions with this now, um, in the communities you grew up in, did you, uh, what kind of communities, what was the community sense of community as far as uh, religious communities or mm-hmm. um, any communities? I, well, yeah, to? I was, I was um, you know, I, in school I obviously had much different social interactions and friends, and when, but when I went, um, to, I, I went to religious school as well. Um, and that was kind of like uh, either every Friday night or every Sunday. A religious school? Uh, yeah. It wasn't a real. I mean, I didn't go to religious school in the sense that I went to a public school. Yeah. Uh, but I did go to uh, kind of like I guess it was like going to church every Sunday for a lot of people, right? Yeah. But uh, I would go on Friday nights instead, and later on change the Sundays. But um, it was a kind of religious community um, uh, that um, you know was like an education in Hinduism, basically. Um, and it was a community as well. So we played basketball, you know, and we went to classes for Hinduism. Um, and then, mm-hmm. you know, later on, I also went to camps and stuff like that. Um, and I was never very religious at all. I was always mm-hmm. a kind of, uh, you know, rebel, I guess. <laughs> yeah, so you found um, yourself kind of not believing in those things? or do you know, I've your... always been an agnostic, at least. Uh-huh. At, ta- at times, I was an atheist. At times, I was at, at times I kind of had a general spiritual belief. I'm now an agnostic again. I pretty much mm-hmm. I would say oh, I've always, for the most part, been an agnostic. But I always believed in questioning. I never really believed in just believing in what people told you or what you read, etc. Um, and I always had an, a, a, a really strong independent streak of what I would believe in, what I wouldn't. But at the same time, Hinduism is definitely influenced me strongly in terms yeah. of the way I look at the world and or you know um, just a, and, and certainly it's influenced my art my work my yeah. literature the, yeah. the uh, writing that I that, that I produced so 
um, you know, for, for better or worse, it was definitely a strong influence on me. So you were talking a little bit about the culture of fear or the element of crime mm-hmm. and kind of that atmosphere that you grew up in where you felt maybe threatened a little bit by the kind of criminal, the gang-related uh, elements in that community. Uh, did that change as you grew older? You went to Wesleyan. Did you still carry with you that some of that uh, haunting feelings, or I definitely carried it with me. Uh-huh. Uh, Wesleyan was a completely different atmosphere. Yeah, um, you know, it was a. I guess you could say it's the bubble, right? Um, yeah. It's a college bubble. Most of the people I knew had grown up. I guess you might, you might call it upper middle class. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I, my roommate was from Queens, for example. Yeah, and yet, you know, I think his outlook was a little bit different than mine. Nevertheless, um, you know, it was definitely a different atmosphere. I remember the first one of the first days I was there. Um, I was walking down the street, and this girl smiled at me and said hi. Mm-hmm. And I was, like, shocked by this. Yeah. Like, literally, I was shocked because that would never happen to me in New York City. Like, yeah. you know, I mean, I would, I would first of all, yeah, you, did, you were kind of, like, just, not, not just taught, but just, like, you know, that it, it was just natural for you just not to make eye contact with people, you yeah. know, um, let alone say hi, you know, somebody on the street. Yeah. Um, so I was... You know, so that was a major difference. Um, and I, I'm honestly, by that time, I was really sick of New York City. I really didn't like it, and I mm-hmm. wanted to get out, and that's why I chose to go to Wesleyan. Um, and, and I enjoyed my time there, no question. Um, and after you finished college, you said you would, had returned. You went to Boston for a little while, but then you returned to Well, New I went York, to Boston or? after I finished my MLS. MLS, okay. Um, my, yeah. uh, my, my... My MLS had finished. My it was actually a really quite crazy story. My mm-hmm. my house burned down, uh. <laughs> um, and I had to live with my uncle. And my uncle, li- I, I literally lived in my uncle's basement with his two cats. And I was finishing my thesis for my MLS, yeah. um, <laughs> and then my grandmother died, uh, who had raised me, who had helped raise me, and so I was in a really like. Um, strange place and I really was unhappy with my life and I I mean I, I always I, I was still writing and I still wanted to be a writer that was the main thing to me but the question was how do I achieve this you know mm-hmm. um, and I didn't feel working at the agency had like really been enough to like the, you know as a counterpoint um, and that's why I decided to go to library school to become a librarian um, so you moved through. back. You, you you moved to Boston. Well, I did. I moved to Boston because I thought that I could move, I could work with a friend of mine there who was an, an independent filmmaker and was you know doing stuff in film. And I was interested in screenwriting uh, because of you know my kind of the way that I write and you know the the ease I have with dialogue and with structure uh, was pretty you know conducive to screenwriting um, and the kind of stories I want to tell, which is crime fiction um, for the most part. Uh, so, you know, I went there and, but, you know, it, I, I lived with him for a couple of months, but at the same time, I applied to this job at Queens Library and uh, I'd also applied for all these MFA programs um, and I luckily got into the Queens College MFA program, which thankfully was right near my house and also was right near, uh, ironically ended up right, being right near where I was placed uh, in the, the first library I was placed in. And so, uh, you know, I made the decision that I would move back because I, you know, as much as um, I wanted to be a writer and and a filmmaker, you know, I also needed to make a living. I also really, I realized that I, that structure was very important to me and and that 
you know, even having a job and being out in the world was was something that would actually help me and contribute to my writing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when I got this job, it was it actually ended up being the perfect thing for me in a certain way. I mean, certainly mm-hmm. I had to you know work uh, thirty five hours a week, um, but you know I worked worked in a place where I met a lot of people, you know, saw a lot of things, and I suspect and that wrote a lot of books. So I suspect when you returned to New York to start working at Queens Library, and 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 at that time you were doing MFA mm-hmm. in the beginning of your beginning of your career, that you probably had a different perspective, of Queens, or do you feel like that? perspective changed when you returned and started working at Queen's Library? Do you feel like you maintain the perspective that there was kind of a, an element of, you were saying in the Well, the first here. library I worked in had, mm-hmm. I mean, I don't want to go too much into it, but it had a lot of violence in mm-hmm. it, than the library. I mean, it was the worst, it was basically one of the worst branches known for teen violence mm-hmm. um, and gang activity. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, th- so that kind of brought it all back to me in a yeah. certain sense, you know. Um, I mean, it, it's ironic because, like, uh, I guess back then you kind of saw it in the streets, and now you kind of see it in the libraries. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I, I hate to say that, but yeah. it is pretty true. Um, we don't have it as much in the streets because we have better policing, maybe. I don't know, but yeah. Um, but in any case. So that brought it back to me, and um, you know, and I also saw this conflict of worlds again. You know, I saw the the older people had a certain conception of what things should be like, and what they saw as the good old days and stuff like that. Um, and I had, you know, you had the younger people and how they in- interacted and acted, and how they view they view the older people and themselves. Um, and so all these different social interactions were all were all fascinating. Uh, this is all stuff that I grew up with, but it was kind of like heightened in a certain sense in like one place, you know. So you read a little bit from uh, the Brotherhood, uh, the first uh, volume of a series. Mm-hmm. Um, at what stage did you start writing this work? And uh, okay, so it's a very long story actually, because uh-huh. I started. I actually, I would say, in in the purest sense, I guess I started when I was in college, mm-hmm. um, when I was between my freshman and sophomore year of, at Wesleyan, uh, I, in the summertime, I started writing every day. I started writing this, uh, I wrote this story collection about this group of uh, uh, Hindu um, Indian Americans who are in this religious society um, and they you know, have this, these conflicts between themselves. And at the time, I had sent it to a professor of mine, and he was a, he, he he just thought the conflicts weren't uh, varied enough, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, and the writing was very good, but the conflicts weren't varied enough. Um, and so at that time, I put it aside, and I worked more on like my storytelling abilities, I guess, at that point. So and I, I started writing a more plot based, or maybe more you know more pay, like yeah plot based stories um, okay. that were darker. And so I always had this kind of tension between this kind of literary, like short stories, um, and these kind of, uh, I guess, longer works that were more plot based. And that's something that I've always tried to balance throughout my writing career. But yeah. in any case, uh, when I when I got back to um, the MFA program, that's when I started writing this particular kind of thing, where you had these Indian American characters. Who are varied, uh, varied um, professions and different life experiences, but we're all kind of influenced by the same uh, organization. But also had you know um, all these other uh, people on you know 
uh, who are not necessarily Indian American, who are also part of the periphery of this world. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's when I started writing it again. And I, it went, you know, I did it, I did, I write a draft of it for my MFA thesis. Uh, but even after that, about three years after that, I kept rewriting it. Um, I, I literally wrote every day, every morning, mm. or, and, or at that time, every night after I got back from work. I know you have a good regiment um, with. Uh, right. So, as I said, you know, writing, I'm very structure yeah. oriented. Yeah. So, you know, I found this. Yeah. Maybe it's the Virgo in me. I don't know. Yeah. But, um, you know, I'm very structure oriented. So, I, ha- I like a routine. And yeah. I read every day, so I wrote. Maybe just to be a little more specific, so now after uh, your MFA, at what, what point did you start structurally writing every a few hours every day? Or? Oh, that was already happening. That was already happening. And I mean, the MFA, I, I would go to class at night, so in that that time, I would. Well, I mean, I I would try as much as possible to write every day, which mm-hmm. I pretty much did. But you know, at that point, probably it was in the morning and or after I got from class. Uh, but certainly, once I tr- stopped stopped the MFA, I would write. Uh, at that point, literally every day, seven yeah. days a week. Um, okay. And uh, over the t- over the years, I've cut it down, so now I only write five days a week. Um, yeah. I'm trying to enjoy a bit more, yeah. being more efficient in it. But at that point, yeah, it was pretty serious. And and I rewrote the book about more than twenty times, like from oh, scratch. Okay. Yeah. Uh, the plot changed a lot. The characters even changed. Because um, your main interest was in uh, exploring the atmosphere of crime fiction, as well as religious organization that was that same seemed to stay consistent throughout your rewrites right yeah but it's not like i was like oh i really want to write a crime fiction book you know yeah. it was just like i want to tell the story but the story would change you know yeah. it's, it's kind of weird i mean i know one of my all-time heroes is Boltock, and he kind of went through the same thing i'm not saying i'm on his level <laughs> at all but um you know he kind of went through the same thing where he was writing you know constantly and he was changing plots and changing yeah. this and that you know and that continued for a long time until like his like early 30s and and that's when he really got going and that kind of is the same thing that kind of happened to me or maybe a lot of writers a yeah. lot of fiction writers you know you kind yeah. of work on stuff throw it away work on stuff you know until you kind of get there and mm-hmm. i think now i'm finally there you know it's a lot easier i I'm, i know a lot more um I kind of just feel what I can write, um, and, and it, it, the story just kind of come out of me. Well, most yeah. of the story to go to America just came out of me, you know. Yeah. Um, so, so just to maintain on the brotherhood, so you, know, you published the um, the first volume that had come out of years of kind of work and exploration. You were saying how, and and was then you started a version or a prior iteration of the book, but then it re- was revisioned during your MFA program, and then you uh, kind of compiled it the writing you had been doing over the years. And then you, at one point, it was in 2012 or? 2012, yes. 2012 is when you published uh, The Brotherhood. And then uh, and then you, uh, now what stage did you realize, oh, this is going to be a chronicle that I'm going to have several volumes in this? Uh, I always series. wanted to have, mm-hmm. I always wanted it to be at least a trilogy. Yeah. So that's what I envisioned, an international trilogy uh, where the main character would, um, you know, be involved in a bunch of adventures throughout mm-hmm. the world. I guess. Uh, you know, in this case, and Southeast global. Asia. Yeah. Um, but um, uh, and 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 I always envisioned the first book being primarily a mystery, and the other books being primarily thrillers that con- con- that that had mm-hmm. mystery elements. So that was always the case. Yeah. Um, the only thing is that the first the first uh, version of the Brotherhood, the first book that I was shopping around was a lot longer and it was more literary and stuff. Mm. Basically, what I wanted to do was I wanted to write an Asian-American noir novel mm-hmm. that was Indian-American rather than 
Asian, like East Asian American. Mm. So, you know, I was very inspired by you know, writers from the 90s, like Chang Ray Lee, uh, you know, Letter Chang, Henry Chang, Ed Lin, um, Suki Kim. Um, they had kind of, you know, spurred this Asian American noir tradition. They were Chinese, they were Korean American. Uh, but I really wanted to write an Indian American version. And so mm. I really had the literary thing going as well. Uh, but uh, no one wanted to publish that. So, yeah. you but know, you was, uh, took the lemons and made lemonade, if you will. And they I guess, yeah, pretty started much. A, uh, uh, it was, it's a long story. Basically, yeah. I had agents interested in me, and then you know, then they weren't interested, and then I had a publisher interested in me, and then mm-hmm. I wasn't interested. Yeah. And then I had another agent interested in me, and I rewrote the entire book into this much more commercial version. Mm. Uh, but this still had the themes within. Yeah. You know? uh, and then that's when I realized that that's, that was my talent, kind of having having this uh, talent for commercial fiction, which was nevertheless had all these internal uh, literary elements in it. And that's, you know, and, that, and then that's when I, I, I felt I had the publishable work. Um, and, that's, and, and then that's when I decided on the self-publishing uh, idea, which I had never, never considered before, honestly. Mm-hmm. I'd heard of it that it was you know, taking off, but I had never considered it because I had worked at a literary agency, and even though I wasn't a huge fan of working there or of the of the system, um, I still kind of believed in it. You know, I just mm. believed in its purity. I don't know. Um, so the, by the, that point, I didn't believe in it anymore. So in the process of you know you working at the literary agency, and then you went to I guess like a dance with publishers. That was the process that made you disillusioned. Can you go a little bit more psychologically into how? You know your your perception of the publishing agency changed, and what was really the um, crux of the? Is it just is it about, about multiculturalism? The voices not being heard, certain voices not being heard. I understand that's kind of the major, um, you know, aspect that you see is lacking in the publishing agency that they're not willing to hear uh, marginalized voices or voices that they think are not commercial enough. Yeah, that's basically it. I mean, uh-huh. uh, I mean, it is frankly, you know, still a very white. Uh, yeah. white world it's a yeah. white world it's an upper middle class world um, and uh, you know not not to say that they'll never obviously they have published multicultural yeah. works but they're <laughs> a very small percentage of it mm. of the ones coming out and they usually will have to be a certain way to appeal to for most, the most part the middle class white mm. woman in the midwest more mm. or less I mean this is what they're mm. you know it's not necessarily that such a person wouldn't like anything, but this is what they're thinking of. Yeah, you know, the big they, publishing agencies. Yeah, exactly. That, yeah. Um, yeah. In terms of the market, and so there's that. Um, but even for you know white writers, I mean, it's just uh, complete luck in terms of who gets published and who isn't. I mean, of course, it has to be quality the work, but mm. even if you write the greatest book ever, the likelihood of it getting published is almost nothing, mm. no matter what, you know? And so that's really what I was disillusioned by when I worked at the agency. Um, you know, even, I mean, I learned a lot about a lot of things, especially running a small business, which mm. I now do. Um, and, and, you know, I, I don't, you know, I, and I like my boss. I like, you know, I, I, I it's not like I dislike working there, but I just, I, I was disillusioned by the system. Mm. Um, and that continued again, you know, even as the MFA, again, I like, you know, my professors were good, you know, my classmates were good. It's, it wasn't like, I disliked anyone in particular, um, but uh, the systematically, I just felt frustrated. Um, and yeah, so uh, part of it is is just um, the the 
the other thing is not it's not just the fact that it's luck it's just that it it kind of it kind of what they want is not really the new stuff they don't want something yeah. original or new they want the same thing over and over again because yeah. that's what they believe it sells and for the most part I suppose it does I mean um, but that's not going to contribute to a dynamic literature you know that's not going to contribute to something that that we can build that's new and that will reflect today's world you know so your um, vision was to uh, kind of collect a coalition of uh, self-publishing writers under the new way uh, can you talk a little bit about that and then we'll yeah, basically, um, you know, I called my company the new way. Uh, way is spelled W-E-I. It's actually a Chinese word. It's a Chinese uh, given name and word that basically means power of the sublime. So I kind of en- envisioned it as uh, the new power, a new sublime, and also a, a new way forward for, for literature. Um, but that was just that was my company. But what I really envisioned was, yeah, basically a, a group of independent writers who are creating this new um, this new renaissance in fiction, um, and who are you know, and self publishing is just the means for that. But it's it's a good means because it's it actually is dynamic and and so um, you know it, this is something that and over the years I mean, this is five years ago and over the years I met other self published independent authors who kind of convey that some extent and 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 you know it's it, right now it's not really a coalition yet um but uh you know we're building towards that and certainly uh if there are other independent authors who, who feel that they they meet that mold or are interested in doing something like this then you know I, i'm certainly interested in, in meeting them and sure. uh, uh checking out their work okay great we'll take a quick break and we'll continue the conversation so uh thank you so much you're listening to the truth to power show on radio free brooklyn now we'll take a moment to listen to a song by uh, the band called um, Aaron Mary and the West Island. Uh, it's called Down in the Dark. So please enjoy and uh, follow them on Facebook.
Tejas Desai. I'm the author of Good Americans, which is the first volume of the Human Tragedy series. This uh, story that I'm about to read is called uh, Mal- Malta, A Love Story. It's, uh, it's actually a three-part novella that's straight in the smack in the middle of the collection and basically kind of, um, uh, kind of sums up the, all the themes of, the, of, all, of all the other stories as well. Gunal got up at 6 a.m. every morning. His mother still made him his daily breakfast of toast and boiled eggs, but sometimes Ami, if she was going to the office early, would do it instead. The apartment was crammed now that they were married, and his father lay debilitated in his small room with terminal throat and lung cancer, unable to speak because his larynx had been removed. The last stages seemed to take longer than anyone had expected. I'm sorry, Ami, Kunal would often say before they went to sleep. I thought we would, we would get our own place. It's okay, Kunal. With your dad and everything, I understand. The motel can't run itself. You're looking for buyers, so it'll work out. He didn't say anything because he knew that wasn't true. Actually, he was looking to acquire another property a few miles away, next to a convention center he heard would be built, reputedly from the sponsorship of another major NBA star. That meant the motel's asking price had skyrocketed 200%, but he figured the investment was worth it if he could raise the down payment. The bank was asking for 50% because of the tough economy. He'd acquired the taste for running motels from his father, and he had no desire to go into any other line of work. His father never had the ambition to acquire multiple properties, and he never directly told Kunal to follow in his footsteps, but Kunal always felt he should. It was in his bones more than some engineering job. He'd already married the girl his parents wanted him to, settled down in his hometown, and there was no reason he should leave. Plenty of other Indian sons would take over their motels too, so why not him? Too bad the competition was fierce among the Indian American community, making it more difficult for him to acquire the property. It was the only motel in town still owned by a major corporation rather than an Indian family, but that would certainly change. Philip was the only holdover who still worked for him. He was a retired high school gym teacher who now worked nights to help his professor wife out with the necessities. He was counting the money that Kunal entered. It was a good night, Kunal. Really? Yep, full house, including a party taking six rooms for four days. Some kind of town fair next door? Tried to get it out of them, but they wouldn't budge. Pretty secretive bunch. Maybe they are taking a vacation from Langley. That would be exciting, Kunal said. Oh, we've got plenty of excitement here. You heard about that new convention center? Proceeds are going to trickle down here, too. Ball games, graduations, events. An additional boon to business and property value. I know, Phil. I'm starting to sound like, like a dad now, right? Philip said. A bit. Sorry, kid. I know you're smart. Just trying to give you pointers, that's all. As always... You're like my own son, Kunal. You've been loyal. I'll give you that, Kunal said. Philip looked hurt. Kunal rethought his response. Sorry, Phil. I didn't mean to sound cold. I I appreciate everything you've done for us. I guess I'm just tired. You guys can't work 16 hours a day, Kunal, Philip said. You've got to hire somebody else. Or get that wife of yours to work for you. She's got a real job. She's bringing in good cash. Philip bit bit his lip and stared at the floor. What's wrong, Kunal asked. Listen, kid, I'm not sure I'm going to be around much longer, Philip said. 
What do you mean? Quinnell asked. My wife was offered a good job at the University of Kentucky. Head of the psychology department there. And you're going? She's still thinking about it. I mean, all her roots and friends are here, but she'd be a fool to pass it up the way I look at it. Looks like I'm going to have to hire two new people. Too bad we never we can never find anyone trustworthy in this town. You will, Philip said. But I won't say bye to you yet because it's not definite. And when I do, I'll see your dad for sure. You can see him now, Quinnell said. No one's stopping you. Your family. Philip put his hand firmly on the counter and looked like he was about to cry. Thanks, Quinnell, Philip said, putting his arm around Quinnell's shoulder. Quinnell hugged him with one arm. Okay, so welcome back. We're here with Tejas Desai, author and librarian. Um, author, we just heard a little bit from Good Americans, a collection of short stories that's an ongoing series, um, part of the human uh, tragedy. And if you talk a little bit about um, that envisioning Good Americans as a series of, cl- of short stories and how that came about. Sure. Um, well, I was, you know, as I said in, in uh, the last segment, um, I have always had this kind of tension between writing these literary short stories and also writing this commercial crime fiction um, and how that kind of mixes up. So, but over the years, I was writing a lot of short fiction. Basically, you know, I, 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 I think uh, I think William Faulkner is my probably my greatest teacher. He was my favorite writer for a very long time. Now it's now it's Balzac probably more so. But um, he really said, you know, it's experience, observation, and imagination that informs the fiction, the the, the true fiction writer, and um, you know that's what it's been for me. So you know, based on my experiences, based on my observations, and based on people things that people told me and people I talked to, I I started writing these stories uh, over the years that um, had all these different types of characters that were in from different worlds and um, the way they interacted. Um, and so I was initially trying to uh, sell this book. It was, it, was, it was initially called Dan's Debut and Other Stories, which, which is one of the stories in the, uh, in the collection, Dan's Debut. Um, and uh, at some point I realized that I, I was kind of writing this book that was kind of portraying American society in different ways that was contemporary. Um, and uh, when after, after I published The Brotherhood uh, I thought to myself that I wanted to bring this out in uh, that I wanted to kind of revamp the short story collection and a lot of short story collections just come out and some, I mean, some writers are just short story writers let's just face it. they're great writers um, but you know so either they're writers who write short story collection that's what they write or the short story collection is something that uh, they bring out before the novel, you know, mm. as a way to, to like, you know, show their talents off. So what I wanted to do was I wanted to kind of create a short story collection that would be um, the the jumping point for a series of short story collections that I could portray uh, American society in. Um, and and when I tried when I decided to to publish it, I actually wrote I actually wrote at that time some of the best stories of in the book. I was just trying to beef it up, actually, into a longer collection, and it ended up making the collection so much better. Um, you use the framing device of uh, it as being uh, found mm-hmm. literature. Um, can you talk a little bit about the decision to do that? And how yeah, that- sure. That was like after I had, <laughs> after I had written the stories and after it was already written, 
Um, I, when I was in college, I actually created this character named Ophelia Gibbs. <laughs> it was a kind of a funny thing. I would, I actually created her and I had her own email address, and I and she would kind of email my friends and stuff like that. Yeah. It was kind of a funny thing, you know. Yeah. Um, and uh, and so I made I kind of used her personality. She was basically an older African American woman who was mm-hmm. kind of like in some ways my alter ego, I guess. Um, and uh, but it was a perfect thing for me to make her into this literary agent who is kind of this kind of a successful African American literary mm-hmm. agent. But she loves this collection so much, which is sent to her randomly, you know, by some someone by email. Um, and she's also disillusioned with the publishing industry. She's tried to, she, you know, she was publishing black publishers, which is a completely different, you know, world in publishing. Unfortunately, you know. Um, you know, that's like urban its own fiction, thing. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, yeah. what we call black, you know, African American fiction or black experience. And you know, that's, mm. a, that's a whole other conversation yeah. about what that is. Yeah. Um, and how that's completely, you know, uh, different from the kind of quote unquote white world of publishing. Mm. But, uh, but anyway, she just, she's from that world. And she tried to get into the literary world. Uh, but she's also very frustrated with that. As she gets this collection and she wants to publish it and she tries to publish it. And, but she can't. And so, you know, she decides to sub-publish it, and then, lo and behold, there's Tatis Desai, the publisher, who comes and, and yeah. decides to help her with it. Sure. So, you know, in the, in the internal reality of, the, of, the, of it is that it's, it's the literary agent, Ophelia Gibbs, who's this, this old African-American rich uh, lady from Flushing, uh, and uh, Tatis Desai, a struggling publisher, trying to create a great literature, and they're working together. And the stories are written by different authors, um, uh, and, and they don't want to be named because the stories are so scandalous yeah. um, and, and so that's the internal you know, narrative and that will continue in the other books um, and it continues but, to comment on but, yeah. being American mm-hmm. and what that means right. um, will the subsequent books also continue that or will we continue the multi uh, uh, the, you were talking about how you were interested in global narratives as well. Uh, so. I think it will be primarily American still. Mm-hmm. Um, I really want to concentrate on this society more. But, you know, I mean, one of the stories in Good Americans is not set in America, mm-hmm. but the characters are like in the Saudi Royal Program, for example. So they're American. Um, even they're not born in America, but mm-hmm. uh, most of them. Um, but I think, you know, uh, I, I most likely will, maybe there'll be a story or two that won't mm. be, but I really want to focus on America and there's enough material here. Honestly, you know, I've told yeah. people and I think this is true. I have enough material to write for my entire life, sure. maybe even, even another one, yeah. <laughs> you know, like I, I'm, I'm constantly traveling, constantly meeting people, constantly getting stories. Um, mm. you know, and so, somehow I always end up meeting the craziest people. I don't know. It's yeah. just weird. So let's but, talk a um, bit about your travels. So, um, can you give overviews now? I know you recently we traveled to Korea, so we got uh, that uh, experience down. But can you talk about you know, the cross-country trip, I think, was a pivotal moment, you, I know, for your experience as a writer, mm-hmm. um, experiencing the country more as a whole, yeah. and, and talk a little bit about your perspectives on America as a whole and your perspectives. Sure, there. yeah. I mean, I, I basically I decided to take a 30-day trip to, across the U.S. I rented a car. Um, in Manhattan, and I started driving, and um, uh, you know, right past uh, New Jersey into Pennsylvania, it like the entire—I I would say the entire culture changed in a certain sense. Because on the radio, all you hear are country music stations. I mean, mm-hmm. you can really see the cultural shift between what we would call, I guess, blue state America or blue America and red America. Uh, so that was pretty interesting. But um, you know, I drove to the to the Rust Belt states that. 
at the time, you know, were, you know, considered blue states. And, and, and that was right before, like a few months before um, the election, where they all went red. Um, and I really saw, like, how, you know, down in the dumps, like, Cleveland is. And, you know, there are potholes everywhere. Half the houses are boarded up. Um, even in Ann Arbor, Michigan, strangely enough, mm-hmm. you know, um, there are potholes everywhere. And this is, like, a relatively rich, you know, city. Um, so, I don't know. I, I, I met a lot of interesting people. You know, I, 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 I met a guy on couch surfing who I actually didn't stay with, but he ended up, you know, inviting me into his home, and, and we ended up making a beer together in his basement. Mm-hmm. You know, like, um, yeah, I met people... Um, I don't know. I, I met all kinds of interesting people um, who shared their stories with me, um, and uh, it was a great experience. Um, mm. That I mean, I haven't used that for say in a story, but I've been documenting my adventures there and other places on my primary Facebook page, um, and you know that that might become a book. I don't know, yeah. um, but certainly you know all the people I've met both locally and 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 throughout my adventures. Uh, may, may or may not inspire uh, stories to come. Um, so your adventures abroad, uh, let's talk about how you compare um, your experience of traveling abroad to doing a cross-country trip. And can you talk about, where, where, can you talk a little bit more about which countries specifically you traveled abroad to? Um, the US, well, know, I've done a lot times. of traveling in Southeast Asia. Uh-huh. I've been to Thailand three times. I've traveled to Vietnam, Laos, Cambodia. Um, I've been to India five times, which is obviously where my ancestors are from. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I've, I've really like kind of delved into Hindu and Buddhist culture and or and mm-hmm. art um, as well. And that's really uh, uh, was an inspiration for the two uh, latter books of the Brotherhood Chronicle. Um, right now they're titled The Run and Hide and The Dance for His Death. But um, so that that was an interesting thing for me. Um, and, you know, it, again, you know, like my books are pretty dark, but I, I met lots of great people who helped mm. me out. And and even when I was in a very vulnerable position, I didn't I, did, I was placed in, in Thailand where I didn't even speak the language and no one spoke English and they could have taken advantage of me and they didn't. You know, mm. um, on the other hand, I also, you know, uh, observed violence and other things, too. So. Um, and, you know, so I've been there. I've been uh, Southeast Asia, Korea, China, uh, Hong Kong, um, and uh, and in Europe as well. Um, yeah. Oh, so, yeah. And, every, every, yeah and, I, and I never really get tired of it, strangely enough. Mm. I don't know. Um, yeah, it always invigorates me. Oh, good, good. So um, <clears throat> this, uh, pers- what I was specifically getting at was the perspective of the people in these countries like, do you find that the um, atmosphere or the people in these countries are somehow? What is the distinction of actually being American and being countries? Maybe it's a very ambiguous distinction to talk about being human. Mm-hmm. You know, we're talking about really being human. Yeah. You know, um, the cultural differences or the um, the deeper differences in, in your experiences of interacting mm-hmm. uh, with people. Well, I would say the world is. More more diverse than I thought. I, mm-hmm. You know, in certainly in Europe, I mean, there are there's a lot more diversity there uh, than you would think. Uh, in you know, I mean, I mean, the U.S. obviously is incomparable in a certain sense, mm-hmm. but um, uh, for the most part, their attitude towards Americans are negative. Mm-hmm. Uh, not all, but um, you know, it was it's funny when you know since I'm 
uh, of Indian descent, no one really looks at me as being American when they look at me. Um, and I, I, I generally found the attitude towards Indians was very positive, and Hinduism and Hinduism is very positive, whereas uh, American was very negative for the most part, mm-hmm. uh, except to some extent in some places like East Asia were kind of. You know, um, it, it really depends on the place because uh, we have the same people there have the same prejudices that we do. For example, if you look at that, um, you know, I write a lot about prejudice in Old Guido, for example, in Good Americans. There's a, mm. there's a lot of that in Good Americans in America. But you know, when I, when I was in Thailand, for example, I was hanging out with these two Thai girls who. I, one of them I met on the plane, and she just was like, "Yeah, sure, I'll show you around." And so she, I met mm-hmm. up with her and her friend, and they showed me she, they showed me Chinatown. They were very proud of Chinatown, and mm-hmm. you know how Thailand was so inclusive of Chinese and stuff like that. And, and there's a huge Thai Chinese community there. And yet, mm-hmm. um, you know, they uh, there was a woman who was begging um, by the side, and they were like, "Oh, I think we think she's Vietnamese," you know. Because they're mm-hmm. prejudiced against Vietnamese people, they they think they're lower and poor, and and they're they're illegal immigrants. And the same thing with Burmese, um, you know, they're uh, Burmese are looked upon in in Thailand as well. So we're a lot of the same attitudes, cultural attitudes, and or socioeconomic, I would say, attitudes are there as well as here. So that's really no different. Yeah, you know, I'm seeing a thread here of like, you know, growing up, you have the um, atmosphere of crime, and then the atmosphere of fear mainly. And how like that fear kind of uh, is feeds into stereotypes. I think in the general public, I mean, you know, the the human experience of fear feeds in these stereotypes, perpetuates racism, Mm -hmm. perpetuates these uh, smaller interactions where people are hostile and people are creating this kind of atmosphere. And then you're talking a little bit about how there's a in contrast to that the experiences of having you know, uh, having an intimate conversation with someone and having, you know, being very nice and very open and, and warm and how those can sometimes be very powerful and be very powerful for our yeah. human experience. Mm-hmm. So yeah, just to, it's yeah. weird. It's, it's always a question. Of, I think there was a reviewer's word about Good Americans saying, well, is it a question of are these people really, is it really the world that's prejudiced or are they just internalizing prejudice mm. based on their own personalities or, yeah. you know, and there's never a clear answer in Good Americans, you know, I think another reviewer said, you know, it's it's never the, the author never gives an opinion. You're just shown what it is, and you get to make up your mind. Yeah, um, and that's what I found also a lot of my travels. I mean, I've met people who have certain perspectives that are, you know, they had the, they would almost maybe have the same experience as some other person, but their viewpoint is completely different. You know, yeah. like someone, you know, when I was in Germany, I met Germans who were very open to immigration, and you know. Um, you know, I mean, I mean, I think at the time, thirty percent of German Germany, the, the young children are not of German descent. Um, and then I met another. I mean, literally the same day, I, I met. I went to the University of Leipzig, for example, and met uh, you know a tall student with blue hair who was like fighting for African American immigrants, uh, refugees. And literally five minutes later, I was in uh, you know the plaza next door. And this neo-Nazi guy <laughs> sits next to me, and he starts telling me, you know, the Af- the African refugee shouldn't be here, and you know, there's no such thing as a as a conservative in Germany unless you're a neo-Nazi, mm. and you know, so he had a completely different viewpoint on it. Um, yeah, and we think about these people as individuals, like having their own lives, but actually, it seems to me that uh, they're kind of products of the institutions and the historical. Um, 
traditions that have come before them and, mm-hmm. you know, how we're all products of these um, systems and history that we have our personal experiences as well as the experience of the human condition. So mm-hmm. it seems to be illustrating that, you know, when we meet individual people, so they come, they're coming out of specific context, you know. So, right. yeah. Yeah. It was interesting. I mean, and we're all yeah. kind of coming out of those our own contexts of, you know, having experienced the Indian American uh, life and mm-hmm. uh, experiencing that kind of the way we're perceived by uh, America in general. Like, mm-hmm. as you were saying about, I've also had the experience of people questioning, you know, where you're born or questioning whether yeah. or not you're American because we're Indian Americans. Right, yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> right, yeah. I mean, they have a certain stereotype of what an American is. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, I met people also who, let's say, they're from Australia or they're from, usually if they're from, like, you know, Europe or other multicultural societies, they, they're they not they're not surprised that someone like me can be yeah. American. But if they're from Thailand or Vietnam, they just have a certain conception of what an American should be because they don't have as much experience, maybe. Or the Americans that they've known are, like, older white Americans, maybe, you know. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, it really depends on how they are informed and the societies they come from as well, yeah. what, how they how they will re- react. Um, okay. So in Good Americans, you uh, have several different stories about snapshots of uh, perspectives and people from different cultural backgrounds are American. Um, one story of which was outside of that, but generally you're analyzing uh, the ethnic experience and how you know these people are interacting with their religious or their their ethnic background, the religious mm-hmm. background. Um, so, what would you say is the uh, synthesis of the American experience? Then, and the book is postulating then. I don't think there's an answer to that. I uh-huh. mean, uh, it's it's you know it's it's a constant conflict of worlds, yeah. um, and you know we're in we're in a in a sense a transitional period. Mm. In some ways, our society is more stable than a lot of other societies in many ways, and yet we are also in this constant conflict. It's it's based on identity. It's based on socioeconomics. It's based on politics. Yeah. Um, I don't know, you know, there's no one way, you know, I, I feel my role is to, to show it in a certain sense, you know, not to make the conclusions. Yeah. Uh, I certainly have my opinions about it in terms of where it's going, where it's been, but I'm not sure that's so relevant yeah. as much as uh, finding out what the stories are and or creating them based on the realities of the world and demonstrating them to the world. Um, we live in I mean, we live in a time you know in which uh, after the civil rights movement after immigration was uh, was made open much more open in 1965 um, where we have this where this time where you know you have the older society uh, that's more European based um, that that feels that they're American and that their their way is the right way quote unquote. And then we have this uh, new multicultural reality um, that, uh, you know, uh, some of whom, you know, also feel that the old way is the right way and some of whom want to create a new reality and or, you know, believe that part of their traditions should be part of the American experience. So we're in this this time of conflict um, that not necessarily good or bad, I don't know, um, but that is... That is basically the crux of it. What the crux? It's a question of identity, um, and it, the, the questions. While there are 
only socioeconomic concern as well, which is all documented in my book as well, but it's really, at the end of the day, a question of identity, and that's not something that's going to be resolved anytime soon, I think. Sure. Yeah. Um, and so that's something that, you know, we, we continue to live with and fight with, and we'll see how things go. I don't know. You mm-hmm. know, I, I, I don't, I'm, I, after, after all the things I've gone through, I don't like to make predictions about anything. I'll, I'll yeah, tell you one thing. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Definitely, definitely. Um, you don't know what's going to happen and how things yeah. are going to turn out, but it's good. I think I, I agree with the perspective that as writers, we're trying to snapshot and look at the picture of what we're developing, of what's out there, and um, give a perspective of through that snapshot of this, of this scenery of the world and uh, being American in America. Uh, just before we close out, we'll just talk a little bit about um, the trajectory, again, of uh, the uh, series. Now you have the second volume of The Brotherhood coming out in next year or 2018? Um, well, right now, uh, the second edition of the first volume is going to mm-hmm. be most likely coming out um, in probably mid-2018. Uh, so and at some point after that, the second volume will come out, sure, and then sure. the third volume. So the second and third volume are already written. It's just a yeah. question of uh, getting them out, getting them, you know, prepared um, for publication, and doing enough of a campaign that people know about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's really that's really going to that's really going to going to define when they come out. But they're already ready to go. You know, yeah. and great books. So um, where can uh, where can we send people to follow your? Uh, uh, adventures? Uh, uh, well, uh, they can go to my website, which is tejas-desai.com. You know, yeah, great. So um, I definitely encourage people to yeah. follow I'm on the, Facebook. Follow you yeah. follow my, um, my, really, the best way to follow me is my primary Facebook page. If you Google me, you'll find all the stuff. Thanks, Thanks for me. having me on, BJ. It was an honor. Thank you. Thanks for listening, and please support local radio by going to radiofreebrooklyn.com backslash donate, or sponsor this show by going to radiofreebrooklyn.com backslash truth to power. We appreciate your listening attention and hope to see you next week. Thank you.